I am very, very pleased today to welcome Sister Therese to address us as a chapter. Sister Therese has been a religious sister for about 46 years. She made her first vows in 1976, and um, she studied philosophy and um, attained a PhD in philosophy. Um, And most recently, she has been serving as the chairman of the bioethics department at St. John Paul the Great High School in Dumfries, Virginia. St. John Paul the Great High School um, was uh, an effort of the... um, Diocese of Arlington, and um, Bishop Laverde wanted a bioethics curriculum for the high schoolers uh, based on philosophy. And um, so Sister Therese was the author of that uh, and has been teaching there for about the last 17 years. Um, and so we're happy that she's back here at the Mother House now. Um, so we're very pleased that she is going to be speaking to us on the nature of law and the nature of rights. And um, this is, in fact, one of our study groups is studying um, Catholic social principles, so this is very, very uh, timely. Please welcome Sister Therese. Can I just do one thing? I'm used to teaching teenagers, and... uh, and I like it when, um, if there's a question or an argument or a disagreement, let me know, okay? <laughs> Kids especially like to do that. Um, they like arguing. Um, I am going to start with a quick prayer, just asking the Holy Spirit to be here. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, on this solemnity when we celebrate your manifestation to the, to the, to the Magi, We ask, please, that you send forth into our minds and hearts your Holy Spirit so that he might use whatever goes on here to manifest your truth, your love to us. We want, Lord, all that we are and all that we ever do to be for your honor and glory. And we make our prayer, as always, in Jesus' name. And we pray through the intercession of our Mother Mary. To her we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. I love teaching about this topic because there's so much confusion. Um, Pope Benedict, in the encyclical Charity and Truth, said this, Nowadays, we are witnessing a grave inconsistency. On the one hand, appeals are made to alleged rights, arbitrary and non-essential in nature, accompanied by the demand that they be recognized and promoted by public structures. While on the other hand, elementary and basic rights remain unacknowledged and are violated in much of the world. Many people claim the term right. Um, it's, very, it's used very freely. And, and I think because we're, we're not so sure what a right is, <laughs> that uh, 
that we just kind of like go along with, with this, with these alleged rights. And we're ignoring real um, solid rights. So, so that's, I'm showing you this right now. So people claim there's a right to life, a right to a child, right to health care, homosexual rights, right? Some of these are genuine rights and some aren't. Can you tell the difference? You, you might have a gut feeling right now and be able to, to sort through them. But I'm not so sure you could ex- exactly articulate why. So by the time I finish, if I show you the same screen, you should be able to articulate, no, that's not a right, and this is why. Okay? That's the goal. Um, that is a typical teenage boy's bedroom, they say. When I've given, I've given this talk a number of times to parents at the high school, you know, where I teach, and... Uh, and the only slide I had was a picture of a, a real bedroom, bed made and everything in order, you know. And one of the mothers said, sister, that's not a typical teenage boy's bedroom. But anyway, I show it to you because let's say this boy leaves the house about 7 o'clock in the morning, le- closes the door of his room in this condition, spends all day at school, then has some sports practice, and then comes home, um, I don't know, about 7 o'clock at night, opens the door, and... Beds made, blankets, sheets all pulled up, shoes are off the floor. He can walk on the floor. He can see the top of the dresser. He opens up the drawer. Things are folded in right order. What should he conclude? A cat got in his room? No. Well, it's been 12 hours. 12 hours, long time, air conditioning? No, right? It's either mom, a maid, or a very loving sister. Um... But it doesn't, the order doesn't just happen. Um, my point is, where there's order, it's a sign of some kind of an intelligence. St. Thomas's fifth argument for the existence of God, it's argument from finality. Are you familiar with the four causes? There's the material cause, formal cause, efficient, and final cause. So this argument is basically um, in light of the, the final cause. So it starts like this. Things that lack intelligence act for an end. This is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best results. So, for example, if I repeatedly leave an ice cube out of the freezer or on the kitchen counter and I come back to it two or three hours later, always, 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 it will not be in the same solid condition. Always. So that's the idea. Things that lack intelligence act for an end. Same with the acorn, you know. Acorns, if in the right conditions, always become oak trees. They don't ever become a cactus. Not ever. So there's, like a, there's a design, there's an order established in things. That's what this is saying. This acting for an end cannot be by chance but by design. But that which lacks intelligence can only act for an end if it is directed by something which has intelligence. Things that lack intelligence don't act for an end with regularity unless something with intelligence has, has in a sense, set them in motion. Therefore, there must exist some intelligent being by whom all natural things are directed to their ends. So the idea is we're basically 
St. Thomas is pointing out the order that we see in all of creation. It's a sign that there is an orderer, an intelligent being, who established that order. Now, what does that have to do with law? Do you ever, I heard there's a program called Law and Order, or at least there was. I never saw it, but I heard, about, I heard the name Law and Order. Order and law go together. Um, this is Tom, Thomas Aquinas' definition of law. It's nothing else than an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by him who has care of the community. Just think about this for a minute. Um, like the laws of the classroom. Teacher, with intelligence, <laughs> the idea is, puts order into what happens in a classroom for the good of, of everybody, of the students and the teacher, so that learning occurs. So you raise your hand, you know, if you want to say, if you want to ask a question, you're quiet when somebody else is talking, or the teacher's, the rules um, for the common good that the teacher has promulgated, has made known. Same with traffic laws. Somebody with intelligence has put um, order into how we use our cars uh, on the roads for the common good, for the good of pedestrians and people traveling in, in a car. And those laws have to, need to be made known. All right? So let me look at the definition. An ordinance, it means it's an order. It's not a will you please. It's, it's an order, a command of reason must be reasonable for the common good, the good of all who are involved with it. Promulgated, just a fancy word that means made known. So if an officer pulls me over and says, ma'am, you've been, uh, been speeding, Said, but, but officer, I was going 45, and the sign there says 45. And he says, oh, we changed that this morning to 35. We just haven't gotten around to changing the sign yet. Oh. Well, then it's, it's, if it's not been promulgated, not been made known, it's not a law. And it has to be um, made, it, a law has to come from him who has care of the community, the one who has the authority to do it. So just any student in a class doesn't, is, doesn't get the, make the laws for the classroom. Okay, not, not just anybody can make the laws um, for the state or for the roads. Okay, somebody has to have the authority. So my point is this, if a law is not mandatory, unreasonable, harmful to the common good, not promulgated or not authoritative, it's not a real law and it is not binding. This might help you to understand why people like maybe during... Um, the Nazi, um, during World War II, when they were uh, hiding um, Jews, they were breaking what Germans would have seen, or some people would have seen, as, as a law. But they really weren't violating law, because it was not a real law. It wasn't for the common good. Okay? It wasn't reasonable. So this helps you to judge whether or not to obey um, Laws can get complicated. There's, there's, there's many of them. There are many types. So I'm going to try to clarify the different types to help you to understand, well, to understand them better. You can distinguish law according to their duration, according to how long they last. In that case, they're either eternal, which means without a beginning or an end, or they're temporal, which means that they're in time. They have a beginning or an end. Or I could just 
distinguish law by the way they're made known, by the way they're promulgated. And in that case, there's two kinds. There's natural and positive. Natural just means it's an ordering that we figure out. It's a law we figure out just by thinking, by, by thinking about things. So, you know, if I repeatedly, um, if I let go of something and it falls to the ground, and I let go of, and something else falls to the ground when I let go, eventually I would figure out there must be some kind of a force that pulls things to the ground. How do I figure it out? Naturally. Just my intellect reflecting on, on things, on the order that I see. They, it never, things never fall up. <laughs> you know, it's always down. So that's um, figuring it out naturally. Let me show you. So natural f- physical law, so laws of nature, gravity. It's true, I would never know the term gravity naturally. Somebody made that up, that term. But the idea, I know when I was a, a kid, I'd be riding with my older brother in the car, and when he'd go around the curb, I knew to hold onto the door handle, you know? <laughs> now, I didn't know what to call that, but I knew there was some kind of a force that, you know, that naturally you like figure it out. Um, then there's natural moral law. You know what moral? Traffic laws govern traffic. Classroom laws govern the classroom. Do you know what moral law governs? Anybody know? Well, you're using the same term. Don't use the same term. Souls. No, it actually governs voluntary human acts. Moral law governs voluntary human acts. So we're um, the lawgiver, the moral lawgiver, is trying to put order into our voluntary human acts. What for? So we put order to the, into the classroom because we want learning to occur. We put order into the, the laws of the road, I mean, into the way we drive our cars because we want to reach our destinations safely. Why put order into our voluntary human acts? So we can achieve our end our ultimate end, heaven. That's the point. Um, and um, many of the moral laws can be known naturally. We can just figure them out. Um, so, for example, that, there, that life begins at conception, we don't need a Bible to tell us that. We don't need a church to tell us that. And that's why and when you argue with people on, on the topic of abortion, you can argue from natural law, from, from science. Or you can use the Bible or the church's teaching. But some people can quickly shut you down if they don't believe in the Bible or they don't believe in the church. But they can't so quickly shut down natural law. Same with quite a few topics, actually. Like the topic of contraception can be known from nat- that there's a, that contraception is wrong can be known from natural law. I remember when I taught at Aquinas College, um, and I, many nurses had to take take ethics class, and these were not Catholics. Many of them they were just coming because we have a we had a great um, nursing program, 
And I remember this one nurse, after, see, I would always bring up the top, I mean, explain the topic of contraception from natural law. And um, one nurse in particular, once she saw, well, yeah, this is so wrong. And then she said, well, I wonder why my church doesn't teach this. I thought, well, I could explain that to you, but I didn't know, don't do that. But, but they can see it from natural law. Um, many of the church also, whenever she um, teaches on moral topics, will often teach both ways. In other words, she'll show how, what natural law has to say about it, and then also what, what um, uh, scripture or uh, church documents have to say about it. Okay? So that's knowing law naturally. And then the other way we can, law can be promulgated is positively. In other words, um, when law is positive, that means that somebody basically spells it out, lays it out. So we had a law at um, John Paul the Great that you should not chew gum on the campus. And the kids would say, you cannot know that by natural law. <laughs> natural law would say, you ought to chew gum. <laughs> but it's true, you wouldn't know that by natural law. It has to be spelled out. That you go on green, stop on red, and hurry on yellow, that's not, na- that's not, that's not natural law. Somebody had to spell it out. Okay? That's positive law. So the Ten Commandments are an example of positive law. God spells it out for us. Now, much, many of the Ten Commandments can be known naturally. So why spell it out? Well, just look at our culture and you can see why. You know, um, so much that life begins at conception, you know, um, that contraception is wrong, that sex marriage is between a man and a woman can all be known naturally. But we're not getting it. And so um, God will posit law, just an, it's just an added help. Human law um, also is an example of positive law. Laws of the classroom, positive law. Traffic laws, positive law. Okay? The other way we could define or, or distinguish law is the, where it comes from. So that it either comes from God or from humans. And so eternal law comes from God, natural moral law, natural physical law, natural pos- um, divine positive law. Uh, they all come from God. So what comes from humans? Civil law does. And ecclesiastical law, laws of the church. And I've got to be careful about that. Sometimes the church simply passes on God's law. And she has no authority to change it. But sometimes she passes on her own law. And she can change that law. And if, if you don't know the difference, um, we can run into trouble. Like when the church changed her teaching on eating meat on Friday throughout the year. Some people had trouble with the church changing that teaching. Because they said, well, you can't change that. You can't change God's law. Well, it wasn't God's law. It was the church's law. And she can change her own law. What she realized is, well, the idea of Friday, uh, a penance on Friday, because of, uh, of the Lord's passion and his death. 
And so it's a way of reminding ourselves and, and sharing in it a little bit. But the problem is, for a lot of Catholics today, we just go to a lobster or some other fish delicacy, you know? There's no penance involved. And so the church steps in and says, okay, okay, let's forget about the, the, the meat thing, unless the meat thing is a penance for you. <laughs> um, so pick a penance and do it on Friday. Okay? The church can do that. It's her law. But she will never be able to say, instead of using bread and wine at Mass, we're going to use potato chips and Coke. She has no authority for that. It's not hers. Okay? Now, this is another way I have of explaining all those laws. I'm a person that, like, if I can see things, I can visualize, it sticks better. So think of it this way. Think of the big blue circle. Everything within the big blue circle is everything created. So what's on the outside of the big blue circle? Just God. Okay? Everything within the big blue circle has been created. Okay, when somebody, when an artist makes a statue or paints a picture or whatever, that artist puts a certain order into it. There's a bottom, there's a top, there, you know, there's an order. So the idea is this, the creator put order into everything within the big, within the big blue circle. He, there's an order that the creator de- designed, established. Eternal law, see it's the arrow that points to the big blue circle? Eternal law refers to that order. The order... It encompasses everything. So it's the unchanging order of things as it exists in the mind of God and is carried out by his will. So it's the largest category of law, eternal law. It's the order as the creator wanted things to be. Okay, the next big circle um, with a little, the other blue circle and then some other... The three blue circles in the middle of the big represents the moral life of man. What's the moral life of man? Not my physical, my heart beating, my brain working, my blood. Not, no. Moral life is my voluntary human acts. That is governed by, let me see if this works. Yeah, see, moral law. Moral law governs the moral life of man. But moral law can be known in three different ways. It can be known naturally. It can be known divinely. All that means is divine law is simply God spelling out his law. So divine law is always positive law, and it's God's law. All right? The other way we can know moral law is that we can know it by human law, when you have good human law. So a human law that says, don't drive recklessly. Ah, am I morally obligated to obey that law? You better believe it. Because that law is in line with the order that the creator has established for things. He wants us to safeguard human life. So drive reasonably. So... So get it? These are three different ways of knowing the moral law. Now, physical law is here. That 
Am I governed by physical law? Yes, it's holding me planted to this floor right now. Uh, it's keeping every, it's keeping things working. You know? Yes, we're governed by physical and moral law. The tree out there, governed by physical law? Yeah. Governed by moral law? No. Okay? You can ask a question at any time. You don't have to wait to the end. You can argue, complain at any time. Okay? Notice what happens when we realize there is a law, uh, call it unjust human law. I'm going to put an X over it. I don't know if you can see that X. Basically what it means is, that's no law. And this is why we're actually obligated to not follow laws, so-called laws, which are unjust, which are unreasonable, not for the common good. We're obligated. And really the reason why is because in not following um, an unjust law, we're actually following the order established by the Creator. (laughs) Okay, so eternal law, um, notice both rational creatures, that's people with an intellect and a will, that's us, rational creatures and non-rational creatures, so that's the tree, the birds, um, everything else, non-rational. All of us um, follow um, or we're governed by eternal law. Everything created is governed by eternal law. Both rational and non-rational creatures are governed by the laws of nature because we're, we're all physical beings. But only um, rational creatures are governed by natural law. You see, there's a difference between laws of nature and natural law. So I would never say, you know, the birds flying south for the winter. I would be wrong if I said, they're following natural law. No, no, they're following the laws of nature. Laws of nature is always physical. Natural law is always moral. I'm teaching you real quickly what I would spend a couple weeks on with with my sophomores. Um, St. Thomas says it this way. He, He says, the natural law is nothing else than the rational creature's participation of the eternal law. I, let me give you an example of that. I, I think of it like with regard to contraception. Modern man comes along, you know, and we can understand um, when a man and woman engage in the sexual act that they could conceive a child. And so modern man says, some people say, well, we don't like that order. We don't like the order of sexual act conceiving a child. We don't like that. We want to be able to have the sexual act without a child. And so, and so they use contraception. They disorder the act, is the way I would say it. Somebody who uses, um, for some serious reason, uses natural family planning, what they're doing is this. They're saying, we understand the order the creator has established. You do the sexual act, and there's a good chance that a child will come from it. We're going to respect 
the order that he has established. In other words, if we are unable to welcome and receive a child at this time, then we're going to avoid the sexual act for a time. It's a way of respecting the order that the Creator has established. So natural law is nothing else than the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. In other words, we understand the ordering the Creator has established, and we're, uh, we're going to choose to, to abide by it, live in accord with it. Okay, now we get to rights. See, you can't understand rights until you understand laws, I don't, th- I don't think, anyway. Rights and duties. Well, there's physical power, or we might call that might. It's the bodily strength which enables a person to secure the ends he seeks. When I, do, when I teach this in school, usually there's a small kid, you know, in the classroom, and there's a bigger kid in the classroom. So I, said to the, I say to the big kid, so-and-so, the small kid, is sitting in a desk that you would like to sit in. But he doesn't want to move. And I'm out of the room. Could you show us all what physical power looks like? And usually the kids. And then big kids will say, well, no. <laughs> Yeah, show me. <laughs> anyway, so, so they do. Um, and they, they enjoy it all, you know. Um, <laughs> it wakes them all up. Okay, so th- that's physical power. Moral power, or what we would call right, it's the strength acquired by an appeal to another person's will through his intellect to act in accord with moral law. Now, that probably doesn't make any sense to you. Let me give you an example, and then the words, uh, I'll try to explain the words to you. So let's say that little kid, littler kid in my class, doesn't want, doesn't want to stand up. So I tell the kid, I said, you know, you really, if it's up to you, you would not stand up. You don't want to stand up. Okay, so I say, Joe, as your teacher, I'm asking you please to stand up. Usually there's a pause. So thinking is going on. (laughs) Sometimes I have to repeat it. Joe, as your teacher, I'm telling you to please stand up. Then he stands, normally, nine out of ten times. (laughs) Um, So what happened? Did you feel any power? You should have felt some power. The kid should have felt some power. Not the physical power of the kid, you know, lifting him up out of the desk. But he should have felt moral power. So what is moral power? It's the strength of an appeal to another person's will. So his will, he does not want to stand up. So I need to change that will. So what do I do? I appeal to his will through his intellect. So what does he understand? She's my teacher. She has an authority over me. She's telling me to stand. If I don't stand, I'm going to get in trouble. (laughs) In other words, if I don't stand, I'm breaking the law, a a moral law of the classroom. And I'm going to suffer the consequences. So the idea is this. There's a moral power. Right is a moral power because right 
has everything to do with moral law. In other words, we to infringe on the rights of another person is in some way to violate moral law. And that's, where, that's why rights are so, um, they're powerful when we, when we correctly um, understand what they are. They're connected to moral law. You can't have a right to do what is morally wrong. <laughs> rights are actually there to make it possible, make it easier for us to do what is morally right. So, for example, I get to an intersection and the light is green on my way, you know, and I now have the right to proceed. In other words, the law, the traffic law, backs me up. It makes it possible so that my right, my right of way, enables me to follow the law, the laws of the road. So rights are there, they're, they're connected to moral law. You can't have a right to do what's morally wrong. Um, so might does not make right. So um, the big kid might have the, right, the might to remove the, the smaller kid from his desk, but he doesn't necessarily have the right to do so. So right is the moral power to do, hold, or exact something. This exact something means, like, if I get to an intersection and the light is red, and there's a policeman standing in the middle of the intersection, and he motions me to go through the intersection. Should I go through the intersection? Yes. Why? Because he has the right to exact my obedience. Okay? Um, right, its source or origin is law. I've got to be careful. Uh, that's not... A, really that precise, what I just said there. We know about rights from law. But the actual source of some rights is not law, but our nature. So, for example, we'll, we put the name of the right with the law um, that makes it known. So, for example, natural, natural rights come from what law? Natural law. The source of those rights is not the law. The source of the rights is my nature. The law makes, makes the right known to me. But the source of civil law, excuse me, the source of civil rights is civil law. So the right to, to vote, for example, um, the, the source of that is, is the law. If we, if we want to change the law, then the rights change. Okay. Um, so rights give us the power to obey moral law. Rights can only belong to a person. Does that make sense to you now, why that would be? <laughs> because rights have everything to do with moral law. They make it possible for us to obey the moral law. And so the only, peop only creatures that can have rights would be creatures that um, can obey the moral law. Duties, they're an obligation to do or not to do something. Um, again, their origin or source. We know about duties from law, just like we know about rights. They correspond to right. To, they, a duty corresponds to a right, and they limit rights. So, for example, um, I might have the right to the freedom 
to, to, to say what I want. But my right to that freedom is limited by, I have an obligation to not um, harm another person's reputation. So my right can be limited by my duty. Okay, this chart might help you a lot. I'm going to show you a number of rights. The right to drive. The duty, you got to allow a person to drive. All that means is if, if a person goes down to the Department of Motor Vehicles, um, pays the fee, passes the, all the tests, um, meets all that the law requires, and then the person says, oh, I'm not going to give you a license, the guy could say, I have a right to a license. I have fulfilled everything the law says, requires. Okay, so you've got to allow a person to drive. What law gives us those rights, the right to drive? Civil, right? Civil law. The right to vote. You've got to allow a person to vote. Again, the same idea. If I meet the requirements that the law specifies, you can't just deny me the right. What gives me the what law? Civil. Okay, so civil rights coming from civil law. The right to life. What's our duty? That corresponds to that right. You've got to allow them to live. In other words, do not murder. Murder is taking the life of an innocent human person, person who has the right to live. What laws give us this right? Natural, divine, and civil. The divine law would be the, the, the fifth commandment, right? The problem that we're running into in our society is we know natural and divine law gives this right. But civil law is not recognizing or safeguarding the right to life of the unborn. And that's why there's conflict. And it's why it's not going away. You know, it's been 50 years since Roe versus Wade, and even it's not going to, it's not going to end. I mean, no matter the changing of the law to say that we can now kill these people, doesn't, the changing of the civil law, it never brought peace. Why? Because there's a natural law there that enables us to know. And a divine law. The right to marry. Is there such a thing? Well, it wouldn't be up here if there wasn't. <laughs> I wouldn't have put it in the chart. But, yes, there is a right to marry. There is. So what's the duty? You've got to allow a person to marry someone of the opposite sex. That right comes from natural, divine, and civil law. So let me explain to you the source of the right, naturally speaking. All right? Every human being is um, whole and complete if we're healthy and well. We're whole and complete except sexually. Human beings were made sexually incomplete. Each of us has only half of what it takes to be a whole or a complete sexual organism. We can't function sexually by ourselves. That's why we say human beings are heterosexual. You need another, you need somebody of the opposite sex to form a sexual whole. So there's a natural right to be whole and complete sexually. 
And that's what marriage is all about. It's two persons of the opposite sex agreeing to a, um, a life wherein they sexually complete each other. So they have a natural right to it. Again, the problem in our society is natural and divine law tell us this. Civil law now contradicts it. Is the problem going to go away the longer we have it? I don't think so. I think it will be like the, the pro-life issue. Because there's a natural law. I mean, we can say to her blue in the face, face, black is not white, black is not white, but, but black is black is Anyway, whatever. Yeah, I do. It's, it's clear. There's no, um, there's just, just our saying it doesn't change objective reality. And we're not God. We can't change the order he's designed. There was a, a man in a college class I was teaching once at Aquinas. And I was saying, you know, two men can't sexually unite. And the man said, oh, sister, that's not true. And he said, um, two men can sexually unite. And I thought, oh, the guy doesn't understand. I thought, well, well, so then I gave him this example. I said, well, eating is putting food in your body, right? And everybody says, yeah, eating is putting food in your body. Well, what if I put mashed potatoes into my ear? Would you call it eating? <laughs> we can't change what eating is. Now, we might be able to deliver the mashed potatoes to the organ, you know, where it can be digested. But we, just because we call, it's not, um, we can't change the order. There's a natural law, an ordering that the Creator has established that we can choose to live in accord with or we can choose to, to disregard The right to follow conscience, the duty, we must allow a person to follow his conscience. Natural, divine, and civil law. To really get the impact of this, you have to understand what conscience is, and that that is a problem in our society today. Um, But I'm not going to go into it right now. That's a whole other lecture. But again, this is where natural and divine law are in conflict with some of our civil laws. Some of our civil laws are... Ignoring that right to conscience. Yes, ma'am. Um, it's a good question. Um, should the word "informed" be in in front of the word "conscience"? Um, you can never have a right to do what is morally wrong. Um, so a person has a right to do... Con- what conscience is, is um, your best judgment is what you think God wants you to do. Um, can, your con- can your conscience be wrong? It can be. Uh, do you have a right to follow what you think God wants you to do? To do, even if that's wrong. Um, 
uh, I think you do have a right to do what you think God wants you to do. Now, the fact that if your conscience is wrong, society might have to lock you up. Okay? But um, the idea is uh, the obligation to obey what you think God is telling you to do is your, is your highest obligation. Sister, go ahead. Duty? No. No, I don't no, I don't no, I don't think that. I don't think that's correct. I think the fact that the parents um, engage in an act that brings about that can bring about the life of the child. The child comes into existence. I think from that sexual act comes all kinds of duties. <laughs> all kinds of responsibilities. All kinds of rights. Rights entailed with, they are, parents are morally responsible for the, the well-being of their children, particularly their moral upbringing of their children. It's their number one response, responsibility. Is, is, um, but I think, I think it's a natural, parental rights are natural rights. Natural rights are not coming from their duties. They're coming from the nature of things, the fact that they engaged in a sexual, they're responsible to some extent for the life of that human being because they engaged in a sexual act. And from that comes all kinds of responsibilities. And again, that's a problem we're having in, in the field of education because the state is stepping in or you know, the school board is stepping in or a teacher is stepping in and ignoring the parents' rights. Um, but no, I wouldn't say rights come from duties. There's a court. Wouldn't the right of the child illustrate this better? Is that the child has a right to a father and a mother? Well, we're going to, yeah, but the source of that right uh, is he has a father and a mother. (laughs) Period. It's a natural thing. So he wouldn't be there to claim any right. had they not engaged in a sexual act. So as soon as they do that, would parents have a duty following upon the act that they did? Um, and the child does have a right, but again, I would locate it in the nature of things, that I do have a mom and a dad, and I have a right to be raised by them. I, the child has a right to know them, you know, I have to argue that so much with kids today. They think anybody can just step in and, and, um, and parent a, a child. I think it's possible for somebody to step in and babysit a child or, or take care of his, you know, his food and his, all that. But parents have a relationship with that kid that no other human being can possibly replace. His identi- My identity would be different if my mom or my dad were different. 
I have a right to know them and to be raised by them. And they have a duty um, to be involved in my life. Um, back to the informed and conscious. Oh, yeah. Two, two comments there. For one, uh, Eve was very informed. Mm-hmm. And whatever possessed her conscience to ignore God's oh. Oh, hang on. This gets into what conscience is. I'm not sure. I wouldn't say that Eve's conscience was wrong. We can choose to not obey our consciences. Yes. And it might feel like I'm obeying, I'm, I'm obeying something inside of me. But it's not necessarily conscience. Conscience is what you think God wants you to do. I'm not... I'm the thing about information versus conscience is oh. conscience is conscience. On the second part, there's a retired military person that served during three conflicts. I do respect the conscientious objective for the simple reason that you can't make somebody do what I'm going to do. They, something in them Something in them so morally refuses, and I have to respect that. You can't make somebody do what he thinks is sinful, is the idea. Yes. Now, you do have to protect the common good. So if somebody thinks, well, my conscience tells me to go kill this person, then you lock the person up. You lock him up for the protection, for his protection, his well-being as well as for others. But um, the idea is it's a matter of sin or not sin with regard to conscience. But that's a whole nother, a whole nother. I'm going to keep on going. The right to be confirmed. You've got to allow a person to receive confirmation, ecclesiastical law. So if, if a person has followed all that the church requires or stipulates for the sacrament of confirmation, it would be the same thing. I'm just trying to show you how... Um, the laws come from different, or the rights come from different laws. Okay. Only a person can be the subject, that means the one who possesses a right, and the term of a right, the one who is bound to respect the right. So, for example, if I, um, I want our yard at the, at, at the convent, I want it mowed, and one of my kids does that. For, you know, it's a side job. So I say, okay, if you come mow my yard, mow our yard at the convent, um, uh, I'll pay you $20 to do that. It's a big yard. And uh, he says, uh, sure. He says, I'm going to come after school. I said, oh, okay, I won't be there. But here, let me pay you the money now, and, and you, you do the work later. And he, said, he agrees. I now am the subject. I have a right to his labor. And he is the term of my right. Okay? He has a duty to, to do that. So is it what about animals and plant rights? No such thing. Um, usually the kids will say, well, so that means we can abuse animals all we want? No. <laughs> no. But who has abusing animals is wrong. It's bad. Immoral. But not because the animal has a right. So what makes it wrong? We have, actually have a duty to take care of, of creation, to take care of the plants and the environment. We have a duty. 
if we have a duty, who has the right? Plants don't have the right. Animals don't have the right. So who has the right? God. It's his stuff. (laughs) We're stewards. It's his stuff. He wants it here for all of us. So we have a duty. He has the right. And we have a duty. Not only God, though, also our fellow man has a right to have this stuff. So when we make an animal go extinct, we're infringing on the rights of future generations to have these animals around. We ruin the environment. We're infringing on the rights of our fellow man to have a good environment. Okay? Um, uh, oh, one other thing. Do you know, if somebody is arrested for abusing an animal, do you know what they're charged with? They're, I don't know if they're charged, but what we say is they, they treated the animal inhumanely. <laughs> Not inanimally, you know, inhumanely. In other words, in some way, we violate not only God and our fellow man, we also violate ourselves when we treat animals or, or any of creation badly because we're acting less than human, less than reasonable. So inhumanely, not the way a human ought to act or deal with the good things. We're not good stewards. Yes, ma'am. I was working in the canon law office whenever we were told we couldn't have masks because of COVID. So the canon law, I mean, everything just, you know, the rights, our rights, you know, all of that happening. And some priests were having underground masses. I mean, everybody was trying to figure out what the rights and duties and obligations were. Can you explain in general how this applies to what our rights, were our rights violated? Did the, I, mean, I mean, I'm not trying to get into an argument or anything, but just where does that fit into what you're talking about? Well, when people will argue about that, they, they, you'll hear them saying something about this, the right, um, our religious rights are not, they're not non-essential. I mean, they're, this is, and they'll argue this very thing. We have a you can't take away this right from us. You don't have the authority to. But, um, uh, but I'm not, I don't get me into this. <laughs> but what I'm giving you, is, yeah, thank you. And what I'm basically giving you is like the principles. And this is what they will argue. Do you have the authority to take this right away or not? Okay. And I'm, yeah, I'm no authority on it. Sister, yes, not, not to be like a teenager in the softball class, <laughs> but maybe be like one. How do you handle the question from a sincere student who says, I don't understand why a woman who's pregnant, you know, third or fourth month is murdered, and it's called a double homicide? Well, that's kind of easy. Um, because there's two human beings. What the kids will point out is they don't understand how that can be a double homicide and at the same time abortion is legal. You know? That, and, and they're right on. Kept going on. Um, a person may never be the matter of a right. That means no one ever, ever has a right to a person. 
Parents do not have a right to a child. They, I think we could, you could argue that um, a married couple has a certain right to the sexual act with each other. That right came from the marital, their marital covenant. But whether or not a child comes from that act is pure gift. Nobody has a right to a child. So that's why some people, the whole idea behind IVF, in vitro, for, we have a right to a child. You have no right to a child. You have a right to the duty then. Yeah, but you have no right to a child. But the duty to that child for the rest of their life. Once a child comes into existence, yes. um, the parents have a duty. Duty. Um, okay. Sister. Oops. Yes. Is it also true that a child has a right to grow in the belly of its mother? Yeah. Does it have a right, oh, I see, to uh, the personal environment of his mother's womb? Um, I, think, I think I could, you, we could argue it's a natural right. So we'll put it this, we'll put it this way. Um, so if we start to produce babies and uh, let them ge- um, gestate, you know, in an artificial womb, is that a violation of the child's right to a human environment? The church, when she teaches against IVF, in vitro fertilization, she'll talk about the rights. Uh, it's an impersonal, the Petri dish in which the um, embryos are um, conce- they're conceived in a Petri dish. That's an inhumane, inhuman, inhumane um, environment for a person. The church already teaches on that with regard to in vitro. Um, human labor can be the matter of a right, but not human persons. Like I have a right to that, to that kid's mowing my yard. Okay, so, so what was wrong with slavery in our country? We had a right to their labor. Well, what if somebody from a poor country comes over? He's dirt poor. He brings his family, goes to a wealthy landowner, and says, "I'll work for you for the rest of my life if." Um, my, me and my family can have, you know, room and board. And the, home, home, the landowner says, okay. Is that okay? Is it voluntary? It's voluntary. That is okay, I think. Yeah. The problem with slavery is, first of all, it wasn't voluntary. But secondly, the slave owners thought they had a right to the persons. They treated them as property not as persons. We never have a right to a person. So um, if that landowner you know, has these people, this family living there, he has a right to their labor, and he must treat them with the utmost respect as persons. Okay? Kinds of freedom. I'm almost there. Freedom of movement. You're probably feeling right now, I wish I had some of that freedom. Um, freedom of choice. That's pretty good. That's very good, too. Human beings. Freedom from law, is it a good thing? It all depends. We celebrate freedom from law every July 4th. We celebrate freedom from an unjust law, right? But freedom from just law, whoa. Um, Absolute freedom, the ability to do as I please. Do we have that freedom? Um, Well, if I want to jump off the cliff and fly like a bird, can't I? Well, I can jump off the cliff. And I can, I can flap my arms, but um, it won't turn out well. 
And usually when people say, I want to be free, they mean, and have it work. You know, <laughs> work for me. We really don't have this kind of freedom. Why? Because we have a nature. The kind of freedom we ought to seek is the ability to do the good that will lead to happiness. In other words, the freedom to act in accord with my nature, with the order God established. If what you want is absolute freedom, then the law is a bad guy. I don't want the moral law. Don't tell me the, don't tell me the commandments. Don't tell me the moral law. I want to do as I please. But if you want genuine freedom, give me the law. Like the psalmist prays, your law, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. I want your law. Okay, this helps a lot. Those X, this is a minefield. It's a five square acre minefield. The guy, could be any of us, he needs to get to the other corner of the minefield to get a million dollars, but he has a limited amount of time. Uh, he cannot go around the field. He has to go through it. Now, you can see the mines because you have x-ray vision, but he can't. It's just a minefield. So if we offer him the map, if, you, if he wants to be free, would he take the map? Depends on what kind of freedom. If he wants to be absolute, don't tell me where to step. I'll step wherever I want. Then I don't want the map. But if he wants the freedom to get to the million dollars, give me the map. In, in our life, the million dollars is like heaven. The map is what? The moral law. Give me the, la- give me the map. You know, I was teaching this in school once, and a kid says, and I was going to proceed on to the next slide, and, and the kid says, Sister, you, you, you can't stop there. You've got to finish it. I said, what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean you've got to finish it? He says, well, Sister, if it was as simple as that, everybody would want the moral law. It's not that simple. So finish it. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I said, oh, you're right. So you know why everybody doesn't want the moral law? Everyone doesn't want the map? First of all, we're not so positive about the million dollars. That's heaven. That takes faith. Not everybody has faith. The other thing is, those minefields, nobody wants to get blown up. But guess who's standing at the mine, right where the mine is? You want the answers to this test? Here they are. <laughs> you, want, uh, you want to drink this, this alcohol that your parents have? For, well, they're going to be fit with the gang. Come, come drink this alcohol. In other words, at every self-destruction area, at every mine, there is some kind of an apparent good, something that attracts us, even though it, it's, it, it's no. It's a no-no. <laughs> and that's why... The moral law doesn't look so good. Let me step here if I want to. They don't see it as a mind. They see it as something good. Okay, I'm almost done. The goal of genuine freedom is happiness. Absolute freedom, freedom itself. Genuine freedom loves the moral law. Absolute freedom hates it. Genuine freedom depends on the truth. The moral law needs to be true for, uh, for me to really be free. Absolute freedom, no relation to, to um, the truth. Genuine freedom is the means to happiness. Absolute freedom is contrary to it. Okay. One last point and I'm done. So many people, we overuse the word right when we mean freedom. I don't have the right to say whatever I want. I don't. I don't have the right to lie. I don't have the right to, to ruin your reputation. 
Both those things violate moral law. I can't have a right to do what's morally wrong. Our founding fathers were really, I think, clued into all this. They, I don't have the right to say what I want. I have the right to the freedom to speak as I please. I don't have a right to, in, to practice any religion I want. I have a right, I have a right to, I mean, I don't have a, I, does a Satanist have a right to be a Satanist? No way. Does anyone who is following a false religion have a right to that, to practice that religion? No. He has a right to the freedom to practice whatever religion he wants. You can't have, yeah, you can't, like, I think it's easiest to see a Satanist. A Satanist has no right to be a Satanist. You can't have a right to do what's morally wrong. But he does have a right, the Catholic Church would, would, would be the first to say this, he has a right to the freedom to do so. You don't have a right to be a Baptist. You have a right to the freedom to be a Baptist. Right to assemble, I mean, freedom to, of assembly. I mean, you have a, an assembly gathering together to go hang somebody, you know, or it could be a, an assembly for a bad reason. There, there's no right to that. What about this? I have the right to do what I want with my body. I have the freedom. So if I take my arm, I, I can put it into your, into, your, into your face if I want. Maybe. You know? I mean, if, maybe I, I have the ability I might have the freedom. I don't have the right to do that. Okay? Freedom. Different. So what are the... Um, the freedom to watch whatever... I have, the, I have the right to watch whatever movie I want. When I first say that, kids will say, well, yeah, I have a right to, to watch whatever movie I want. You have a right to watch a pornographic movie? Oh, no. No, I don't have a right to do that. You don't have a right to watch anything that's not morally good for you. You have the freedom, though. So rights would be like right to follow conscience, right to marry, right to life. So just be careful. We use the, right, the term right very loosely. Always connected to law. What law gives you that right? And also, if... No, so like the right to abortion. And they say, yeah, we have the right to abortion because there's a law that says I have the right. But that law is no real, not a really a law, and therefore that right is not really a right. See how it goes? Uh, I have a right to the freedom in this country so far. Okay, so you see what Benedict is saying, Pope Benedict. There are all people making appeals to alleged rights, right to same-sex marriage, right to an abortion. Um, alleged rights. And then they want to um, accompany it with a demand that there, there be public structures for it. And there are other basic elementary rights that are being ignored. The right to life, the right of a child to be, to be raised and, by his own parents. So which of these go? Well, right to a child goes. Homosexual rights. 
Do persons who suffer from a homosexual orientation have rights? They have every other right any human being has. And so the the only reason I wouldn't put homosexual rights because there's nothing special about those rights. You're a human being. You have every other human. Do do they have a right to marry? They do. They have a right to marry a person of the opposite sex. They have no right to change the meaning of of marriage. It's not a man-made thing. It's a natural institution. And you can't change, they can't change it. There's been a question on that right to health care. They say that it's a privilege well, we're gonna, for, for health care, not a right to it. We're gonna, I'm going to keep on going, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get to that one. There, no, what was that one? No right to an abortion and no animal rights. Right to health care. Yeah, and let me just care, be careful about this. If somebody right now falls off of the chair and onto the floor, do we have some kind of a duty to take care of them? Well, yeah, but our duty, I think, I think there's a certain, wouldn't you say a certain right to care by other, by other people? Now, I'm not saying it needs to be government funded. I think a society has to figure out what are we going to do? How are we going to take care of people who cannot afford? What are we going to do? I don't know. I don't have, I think that's a political thing for people to argue about. But I just think that if I'm walking, a person walking, you see him walking down the sidewalk and he falls over. I think there's some kind of a duty that we have, but I think he has... It's a duty and obligation to care for others right. because of the divine law of commandments. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not, yeah, we both agree there. I'm just wondering if there is a corresponding, does he have a right to be cared for by others if they can? I think, I think so. By other human beings. I'm not arguing for um, government control of everything. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think I, as a society, we have to figure it out. How can we do this? How, how can we help the, the homeless people who have medical needs? I, I, don't, I don't know. I have an answer. But it's just, our society needs to have an answer of some sort. Sister, that's what frustrates my wife's been a nurse for 30 years. And she says nobody's turned away. Yeah, nobody's turned Nobody away in our country. Nobody in this country has ever turned away. No. Mm-hmm. We take there care of them. charities and... and yeah, I think the, the issue is, should your government do it, or should it be a private... Or even the, a combination of... A combination of... Totally Amen. I, I think I'm, I'm over time by five minutes. Sister Henry Suso, I'm so sorry. Yes, sir. Uh, I was just going to add that uh, the, the right to health care, I think the issue is to, to, to then jump all the way to, therefore, we should have some form of Marxist government. Right. Um, so there's there's just a lot of uh, room between this statement and going right. all the way to that conclusion. So. And yeah. there's a question on the, the word healthcare to begin with, because in some uh, countries, as we know what happened in Germany, the definition of healthcare changes. Yeah. Their definition of healthcare was completely different. <laughs> Agreed. There's a gentleman in the back here. Gentleman, yes, sir. To follow. Is that what we use to define just or unjust law? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's why like the German soldiers or people had to, to the best of their conscience, to the best of their judgment of their conscience, 
should I obey what Hitler is asking me to do or not? And sometimes even Franz Jägerstadter, you're familiar with him? Yeah, I mean, like his bishop was saying, yes, go along with Nazis. And Franz said, I can't, in conscience. Yeah. Thank you so much.